talk about Lord, and we try to worship in spirit and truth as you commanded. God, I pray that you bless this time this morning, Lord. Open our ears, release us from our distractions, and uh, Lord, I pray that you, it would be your words that are communicated here this morning. Lord, not mine. Uh, Lord, my heart is to serve you, God, and uh, take my flesh out of the way and um, communicate your truth as you would today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I'm off. Am I on? <laughs> Got it. All right. So it was a it was a fall not unlike this one, um, and I was a, a student at the university, much like many of you are going to be students at the university starting next week. Right, school starts on Monday. Um, and uh, there was a, an editorial published in the uh, student paper where I was a student. And I, I don't remember the exact contents of the editorial, but uh, uh, the girl who wrote this, who actually lived across the hall from me, um, was a friend of mine, um, basically was espousing the idea that truth is what you make of it. Um, and of course... Uh, being a biblical Christian, I disagreed. And being a senior at this university, I felt like it was uh, my duty to respond in kind. So my letter to the editor was published uh, shortly thereafter in the student paper um, where I talked about the concept of absolute truth and how we could look at the world and know that there is truth. Well, it didn't necessarily spark the best of reactions from a lot of people. And one young man sent me a, a rather scathing email wondering how I could believe such nonsense when the concept of evolution disproved the Christian notion of God. So, rather than respond in kind, I asked if he'd sit down with me so we could talk. And we did. Um, and we spoke for a while. And I asked him what he believed. And he began to tell me about uh, evolution and how uh, all that exists has come from nothing. And I began to ask him questions and say, well, do you see how the universe is complex? And do you see how every living system and non-living system ties together in such an intimate way that it indicates there must be a designer? And he said, no, 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 it must be, it must be chance. And I said, well, the probability, if we just step back into mathematics and I say, what is the probability of that happening? It is so small as to be impossible. And therefore, your system of belief requires more faith than my system of belief. And his response to me was, well, it happened, so it must have happened by chance. See, this young man had an idea. And ideas have consequences. And his idea was that there couldn't be a God. And so he had to follow that string of thought to the end, which was, well, I'm willing to put my faith in chance as opposed to that of a designer. Now, you may recall the past couple of weeks, Rich has talked about faith. And he talked about uh, how men of faith in the Bible have... Uh, put that faith into action. You recall he talked about Abraham. Um, if you have your notes, you may remember Abraham honestly faced the facts. He confidently believed God's promises. 
and he patiently trusted God's timing. Those are all great principles for us to live by. And then you remember last week, we just talked about Noah, and Noah was an example of how we can offer our lives in thanks, how we can warn others about the consequences of their sin, how we can be ambassadors for Christ, and how we can prepare for Christ's return. Um, And so as with these men, we too can take faith and use that faith as a way to be equipped on how to live. Um, If you would this morning, uh, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Um, this is probably the only time I'll have you flip to where we're going. I'll just read the rest of it to you. Does somebody have a page number on that? It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. 11. 1193 in the House Bible. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that... Uh, uh, what Rich taught us about with these uh, these two examples of faith happens in Hebrews chapter 11. It's often referred to as the Hall of Faith, and it goes from point to point to point on individual after individual after individual who has put faith into action. And so chapter 12 is really the conclusion of that, of what should we do with this faith that has been demonstrated for us. So it starts out in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then if you skip down to verse 12, it says, Therefore, this is again, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. And so I want to, I want to hone in on that, that concept there, run with perseverance that we see in verse 1. What's, uh, what does it take to run with perseverance? Now, if we step back into actual physical running, I think running really takes two things. First thing is pretty obvious, right? And that's physical training. If you if you don't have muscles, you can't move your legs, you can't move your body, and you can't go forward. But I think there's another element that's actually more important, and that's what we would call mental fortitude. Um, I have a picture here of uh, when I learned to run. Actually, that's not it. Sunday morning. Yeah, I I learned to run. Um, about 20 years ago, I think, was when I started. Um, and for me, learning to run was exactly that. It was learning. And uh, there was, of course, a physical aspect, as you can see from the picture. <laughs> Is it coming? As you might be able to see from the picture at some point. Um, 
I, I was not necessarily the greatest physical specimen, if you would. Um, and so physical training was definitely of some value. But what I really had to learn when it came to running was the mental aspect of how to move and how to overcome my body in so many ways. Um, I had My coaches taught me something that was very important. They said running is 90% mental and 10% physical. And it actually took me about four years to overcome that hurdle in my mind of, of how do I run mentally. Um, and so I, I, was, uh, I was able to overcome that and there was a, a marked drop in my time at that point where I overcame that. And what, what's been better for me is that it has been something I've been able to apply to my life all the way through. And especially when it comes back to running, I, I, when I got out of high school, I essentially gave it up. I didn't compete anymore, but I have been able to occasionally pick back up and get back out on the street and back out on the trail and run and I'm able to kind of tap back in to that mental that mental framework that I set up so long ago and in fact uh, just yesterday I had the privilege uh, to go with Brad and his brother and we uh, entered the Rattlesnake Triathlon here in town um, which was a lot of fun fortunately it was a relay because if I had to swim I would have sank for sure I that's where that 10% of the physical capacity would have, would have done me in. But um, Brad is sort of the same way, actually. Brad has remarked, hey, I haven't actually gone on an open water swim in a year. And so then he, he pulled off his shirt and put on a swim cap and ran down the beach and, and dived in and swam a mile in, uh, what, less than 30 minutes, I think it was. 34 minutes, yeah, which is really impressive um, to me. And then I was able to, his brother picked up the bike and, and rode uh, a number of miles for about an hour and a half, and then I got out on the path and ran. Um, we actually ended up winning. I think there was only maybe three or four teams we were competing against. So I, 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 in that sense, it was not not a big deal. I think Brad probably won it on the uh, on the swim leg for sure, but we did have a picture of it here. I don't know what happened to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I had a picture of our team, and you can see uh, it's a great picture because Brad's brother is raising his arms, and Brad's arms are you know, notably at his side. <laughs> After swimming 1,500 meters, he was not going to raise his arms in victory, for sure. So, um, but I think we can apply that. If we take the illustration of running and we take the illustration of mental fortitude, we can, we can take that and we can apply that to us. Remember the verse says, if, it says, run the race marked out for us. And I think that everybody is equipped to run the race. If you're here, if you're living and breathing, God has equipped you to run the race of life. Now, I think you need to come alongside that and we need to create a mental framework on which, uh, on which we, can, we can run. So, uh, what is that framework? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that framework, we could call that a worldview. Um, now, what is a worldview? A simple definition of a worldview that's been described to me is that you can think of worldview as the glasses through which you view the world. Um, I've also heard it said that the contacts you view the world because you can't really take them off and you can't really see them but you're definitely seeing through them. 
Um, another idea, I think back to what Rich talked about last week about Noah and Noah's boat. Um, and he talked about sealing the inside of the boat with pitch. And I think your worldview in a lot of ways is like the pitch that seals the inside of your boat. If you use the wrong product or you don't put it on the right way, your boat is going to sink for sure. And truly, everybody has a worldview. You might be sitting there saying, I, I really don't have a worldview. I just kind of go with the flow. And that's not actually true. There's really no way to get around the fact that you have a worldview. So remember, I said ideas have consequences, right? That young man at my university, he had to suffer the consequences of his ideas. Um, ideas really shape how you make decisions, how you formulate concepts, how you relate to other people. Um, and your worldview is just going to shape your opinion on really everything. And we're going to talk about that because it's important to remember as Christians that we derive our worldview from the Bible. So, there we go. And we're done. Okay. Yeah. So, I would like to... Uh, give you an overview of the biblical worldview here um, hopefully it's review for most of you um, but if, if you're here today and you do not call yourself a Christian um, you may be asking why in the world would you derive your worldview from the Bible and so I know we could talk for weeks and weeks about why the Bible is a great book that you should be basing your mind and your life on but I'll give you a few quick reasons you may want to note these down. You could look them up later if you wanted. But um, first, we could think about the Bible within itself, some internal reasons. Um, uh, that For me, I think the Bible is worth considering at least. Um, the first one is that the Bible has unified content. It's 66 books written by a whole number of different authors. It, it follows one story. And these books were written over the course of centuries millennia and yet they continue to have a, a single unified theme and are consistent with each other across that time furthermore there's prophecies that occur in that Bible that have happened in the beginning and they're fulfilled later and archaeology and history have proven to us that those things were not written back in later to prove something that had happened that indeed the number of prophecies that have been fulfilled is, is amazing and I think also the Bible has a very unique authority and power that there's just no other book like it in the world that, that makes the kind of claims that it does and is able to back them up. Now, you could also say, well, that's fine, the Bible says that, but what about in the world? Like, is there any kind of external proof for the Bible? Well, the Bible is this historical book, and it contains historical events, and those historical events are verifiable and have been verified. So it is accurate historically. Furthermore, archaeology has time and time again confirmed the content and the statements in the Bible. Um, and one other thing I think is very interesting is that there have been many, many efforts over the centuries to destroy the Bible and to destroy Christianity, starting with the Emperor Diocletian in 220 AD and working its way all the way through um, some of the oppressive powers of the 20th century and yet the Bible has failed to be destroyed and continues to thrive and grow and influence and change people's lives so that being said that's kind of a basis as to why we would hold to this now I'm going to give you an overview of a Christian worldview now if you don't hold this worldview just hold on we'll talk about what your worldview is in a minute here um, but I'm going to break this down into I, I didn't even number it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
10, 10 different questions that a worldview should answer. It probably could answer some more, but we'll just try to focus, I guess, on 10. I'm not sure how focused you can be when there's 10 points. but um, So we'll, we'll kind of cruise through these. Um, the first one is the idea of theology, which is answered the question, where did we come from? So as Christians, and those who hold the biblical worldview, we believe there is an intelligent, powerful, loving, just, and awesome God. God is... God created, God loves, and God judges. The Bible tells us, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. And you don't even have to go any further than that. It says, God created. That gives us an answer of where we came from. And it's in the first verse of the Bible. And furthermore, the the Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus is this God. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, says, for in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Second question is when it comes to philosophy, it says why do we exist would be the question we would ask when it comes to philosophy. In the Bible, the answer is that we believe that God is the explanation for the existence of the universe and its contents. Furthermore, science, history, and personal experience confirm to us that God exists. Now, again, back in Colossians chapter 2, the verse preceding the last one, verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world. Instead, what do we do? We look at the world in light of God instead of in light of some philosophy that somebody has come up with. And the Bible again tells us that Jesus is this God. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, it doesn't say God created this time, what does it say? It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who's the Word? Well, if you read on in the passage, you find out that the Word was, in fact, Jesus Christ. Moving on from philosophy, we can think about ethics. Ethics can really be summarized as what determines right and wrong. Well, as a Christian, we believe that moral absolutes exist because God is absolute and unchanging. God, by definition, must be absolute and unchanging. And he must be absolutely perfect or else he's really not God, right? Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God plants the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And it's clear that God, therefore, is what has created the difference and the ability to understand between what is good and what is evil. And then if we look at what the New Testament says, in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And Jesus is this light. His teachings confirm to us that which is right and wrong. And it goes along with everything else that's said in the Bible. So that's where we get our ethics from. Now, let's talk about science, if you will, or we can talk about biology. And we would say, what would explain the complexity of the natural world? I already touched touched on that a little bit. We believe that God is the creator of all nature. The scientifically observed complexity of the universe points us to know that it was the result of supernatural intelligence. For example, if you see a square, do you think that happened naturally? 
No, you probably think somebody drew a square there. In the same way, if you're going to look at the complexity of the biological world just by itself, let's leave out all of the chemical and physical processes, just biology, you'd say, wow, that's so complex and so intricate, it must have been designed. Right? And the Bible confirms this in, back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created. We move from biology to psychology and we say, What is mankind's problem? Right? We believe that man has a problem and that problem is called sin. And that sin is that which makes us inherently flawed. We believe that we are accountable for our sins. And we also believe we must be reconciled to God, who, as we said a moment ago, is perfect by definition. Uh, A good summary of this is in in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, and it says, For all have sinned. Does anybody know what the Greek word for all is? All. And what does all mean? All. That's right. Is there any exception to the term all? No, there's no exception to the term all. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then there's good news that follows that. It says, all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. See, the Bible goes beyond just defining what our problem is. It tells us what the solution is. And that solution is Jesus Christ. So if we move from psychology to sociology, and sociology would ask, what is the purpose of society? Well, we believe that both the individual and the social order, or the community, are important to God. Christ did die for individuals, right? He didn't die for us collectively. He died for us individually. But God ordained the family, and God ordained the church, and God ordained the state. And those, the purpose of those is to teach love, respect, and discipline, how to work hard, and how to operate in a community, right? In Genesis chapter 4, it's very clear God establishes the family as the central collective unit of humanity. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, we see that Christ, you know, if Jesus is God and he comes to earth, he could come in any sort of form or fashion or unit or however. But how did he come? He was born into a family. That establishes God's importance on the family and society. We could also talk about law and say, what defines justice? Well, we as Christians believe that the law originates in God's divine character of love and justice. Therefore, law is eternal, permanent, and universal. We believe that our societal system of law should mimic God's character. A summary in the Bible from this is, in, again, in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, which says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, or the law, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So God has established the system of justice by which our world should operate. So if we're going to talk about law, we can also talk about politics, right? And I know it's uh, getting heated here with about 80 or so days left until these elections. And I won't talk about that specifically. But what, what is politics? It's really the study of how should we govern society. And the Bible gives us an answer for that as well. It's, we believe that government is a necessary, God-ordained institution, and it should exist in a state of balance between the extremes of anarchy and totalitarianism. I love that. It's such a big word. It's great. Government should neither allow for chaos 
nor infringe upon the God-given rights of individuals. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, Jesus is questioned about what, how the people should, should deal with paying taxes, right? How should they relate to their government? And what is Jesus' answer? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And he establishes a balance of, of where government should be and what government's responsibilities should be. So we talk about politics, we can also talk about economics, which I know is on a lot of people's minds. And the question we'd ask is, how should we relate to money and commerce? Well, as Christians who hold the biblical worldview, we believe that God has given us the responsibility to be stewards of property. Therefore, our economic system should provide freedom but prevent injustice and, again, the abridgment of human rights. In the book of Psalm, chapter 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. See, we must recognize that we are but keepers of that which God has created. And so finally, I think I've made it to the the tenth item here, which is history. And history asks the question, well, what is the theme of mankind's story? Well, the Bible gives us a very clear answer. And we believe that creation, fall, redemption is the summary of the history of the world. And ultimately, Jesus Christ becomes God's redemption for us. And this theme is throughout the Bible, and it is the Bible story. So that kind of summarizes at least in ten points what the Christian worldview is. And I really think every worldview should have should come up with a significant answer for each of these questions. Um, so you say, well, you know, as a Christian, Greg, why... Uh, why should I really bother holding to this worldview? Well, I'm going to give you some points from the Bible as to what the Bible says about holding a worldview. Um, the first reason we should hold to this view is that God commands it. A verse for this, put up here, is uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Some of you probably know that. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and he will make your path straight. A second reason is that your witness requires it. Uh, a couple verses for this. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And the third reason it's important, according to the Bible, to hold this worldview is that the world wants to destroy us. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. See, that pattern will destroy us. It says that be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, again, remember, God commands it, your witness requires it, and the world wants to destroy us. And that, to me, is enough reason for us to hold this worldview. So now let's step back from the worldview and say, okay, well, that's fine if you're a Christian, you hold to the Bible, but what does everybody else believe? And I think this is important, particularly for those of you who are students. Um, And I think it's gone beyond the classroom, but um, you're going to come across a number of other worldviews that are going to stand in opposition to yours. Um, and so maybe this will help you think a little bit more about uh, what your classmates and friends think 
and how they view the world. So I think you can really summarize the other, the rest of the world's worldviews into maybe five categories. And I understand that some people will really maybe hold bits and pieces of some of these, but um, we'll go ahead and kind of run through these, and maybe you could have an idea um, uh, as you come across individuals who hold these views. Um, first other worldview besides uh, biblical Christianity would be that of Islam. Um, obviously, we've learned quite a bit about Islam in the past decade, um, but it's interesting to note that over one-fifth of the world's population claims to be Muslim. It's just a lot of people. Uh, a summary of Islam, I understand it's a complex religion, but I think you can really break it down primarily to what they call the five pillars of faith. And those are essentially confession of Allah, and Allah is their form of God. Um, there's prayers, there's giving, fasting, and a pilgrimage to Mecca. So uh, that time of year when you see people walking around the black box, um, they're engaging in pilgrimage, which is a pillar of their faith. So a lot of people, when you hear this in the news quite a bit, they'll say, well, isn't Allah the same as God in the Bible? And the answer to that is an emphatic no. Um, despite being monotheistic, right, to the Muslim, Jesus was not God. He was not Allah. And he did not provide means for us to be reconciled to God. On the other hand, like we talked about a minute ago, the, to the Christian, Jesus is God, and he is the means for reconciling us to God. So if you have those two views, how can they be congruent? They can't, and they stand in direct opposition to each other. So for each of these, I, I came up with sort of a phrase for how you could think about it, like if you could summarize what somebody believes in terms of God. So for the Christian, they would say, Jesus is God. For the Muslim, they would say, Allah is God. Now, the second worldview we'll talk about here is actually that of Marxism. And you can kind of laugh, right? You go, oh, Marxism, isn't that some old guy with a theory, and communism fell, and nobody really holds the Marxist view. Well, maybe so, but probably not. Um, The summary of Marxism would be that it's basically the concept that men are alienated by the separation of society into classes. You have wealthy people and less wealthy people and less wealthy people and unwealthy people, right? And then, therefore, they see all these other systems, including religion, as a tool of those who are at the top of that class order to oppress those who are in the lower class orders. Or what they would call, they throw around the term proletariat, right? Which... Sounds like a George Orwell novel to me or something from the 80s. So anyway, uh, Marxism therefore emphatically rejects religion, quote-unquote religion, of all varieties, including the biblical worldview, and it seeks to create a unified utopian society of what they would call universal equality. Well... Uh, as any of you will remember, the governments in Eastern Europe in the 20th century, how equal were they? Not equal at all, actually, was the answer. And so the Bible says, hey, look, in, in, in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's a central tenet of Marxism, is that there is no God. 
And so, really, you can think about what the Marxists are trying to do, right? And this is where I think it, it comes out of communist governments and comes into today's society. They say, we want to take from those who have and give it to those who do not, right? And there's kind of this sort of, you know, Robin Hood sense of, ha-ha, robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Well, the problem is that Robin Hood was taking from people who had gotten unjustly and were giving it back to the people they'd taken it from. In Marxism, there's no distinction about who has it. It's just an arbitrary taking. We're going to take from these people and give to those people. And so, therefore, it's opposed to almost every element of the biblical worldview. Theology, sociology, economics, government... Um, and really, although you know there are 1.5 billion people today who live in communist countries still, which again is a large number, we see this surfacing in political and economic movements everywhere, including in the United States. Again, I don't want to you know really talk politics today specifically, but it's definitely something you could be aware of. So to summarize Marxism, again, the Christian says Jesus is God, and the Muslim says Allah is God. The Marxist really says that society is God. Uh, the third the third worldview we'll talk about is, uh, it could come under a lot of names, but we'll call it cosmic humanism. Um, and really it comprises those who, hold, those who hold the forms of mysticism, Hinduism, Taoism, the New Age, those kind of things. And really you can summarize that um, under the term monism. And monism means the belief that all that is, is one. And really what this does is it creates an ultimate reality where everything is one and there's really neither dead matter, there's no unconscious energy, but everything is kind of this infinite consciousness that we all get to take part of. And you know, that sounds nice and some people might try to say, well, couldn't the God of the Bible really be part of the ultimate reality? But really this infinite consciousness poses a number of problems to the Christian. First of all, if all is one... And then that one is really God, right? And therefore man, if we can be part of this oneness, we also then become God. And this totally conflicts with the biblical position that man and God are separate and distinct entities. Second, this oneness, this God, is also therefore must be the source of all evil and imperfection in the world. Well, that stands in stark contrast to an absolutely perfect God that we believe in. And I think what's most disturbing about this view and most the consequence of this idea, again, is that if all is one, then one can really make no absolute distinction between good and evil. And so you carry this to its logical conclusion and there can be really no justice. And even the most hideous of crimes, like September 11th or the Holocaust or those sort of things, it can't really be evaluated on the scale of absolutes. And they just become arbitrary judgments. Um, based on individuals. So to summarize that, to summarize cosmic humanism, they would say everything is God. Um, the fourth worldview is uh, what we would call secular humanism. Again, it's a little bit difficult to define, but it's the concept that mankind itself is part of an uncreated eternal nature and that the goal of man's self-remediation the goal is man's self-remediation without reference to or help from God. Um, so therefore, an all-powerful God does not exist to the secular humanist. And so what's man's goal? It's really just to be happy. 
The problem with this view, the first problem I think is very obvious, is that very few people actually succeed, if anybody succeeds, in becoming completely happy. And so what secular humanism does is it sort of deletes the opportunity for there to be eternal immorality, immortality, and reduces life to a series of choices, chances, and circumstances. Um, and so another problem is that secular humanism must explain the existence of mankind, and it must explain the complexity of the natural universe as pure and random chance. So I like to say this, some of you heard me joke about this sometimes, is that you know, an honest humanist, right, who is you know, suffering the consequences of their ideas would see the beauty of a sunrise or would see a newborn baby and all the amazingness that's associated there and they would say, praise chance, right? Because there's no one to praise. There is no eternity. There is no God. The answer is, well, it was all random chance and so if I'm going to worship something, I'm going to worship chance. And so the secular humanist position can be summed up by the phrase chance is God right and so the final the final opposed worldview we're going to talk about here is postmodernism, um, which comes under a lot of other terms too sometimes it's called pragmatism um, but the summary of that is that it's a belief that truth is neither objective nor eternal but is merely a choice made by individuals so therefore the governing truth of society is that which is generally accepted as required for its function um, and so here's a disturbing statistic um, according to the Barna Research Group, um, when asked whether an individual agrees or disagrees with this statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Two people could define truth in totally conflicting ways, but both could still be correct. Do you know what percentage of Americans think that's true or agree with that statement? It's 72%. Even more disturbing, do you know what percentage of those who would call themselves born-again Christians agree with that statement? It's uh, give me a number, 53%. And those who call themselves evangelical Christians, it's 42%. Are you concerned by these numbers? I really hope that uh, 42% of you or 53% of you don't hold to this view. Um, you know, again, it, it seems benign. If you go back to my original story, it was kind of this nice, oh, just a nice comment, and doesn't it sound great in this editorial? Oh, yeah, everyone's, your truth is kind of what you make it, and it's nice, but it's really, really dangerous to hold this view. You know, the Bible establishes eternal truth based on God's character, and postmodernism really takes that subjectivity, right? If truth is subjective, it turns it into a weapon that can be wielded by whoever is the most powerful person or entity in the room, right? And really, you can say, well, postmodernism, isn't that just some sort of, you know, high circle intelligentsia thing that kind of runs around in universities? Well, it's worked its way out. And in fact, I had an experience this week where um, I sat in a meeting with a mid-level government official um, dealing with issues on a contract of some work that we had performed. And this government official basically created a narrative about what had transpired in the course of this project. And that narrative was not true. It was not historically verifiable. And it, it in fact, he, he placed requirements that were not included in the contract. And when we challenged him, I said, but that's not true. His answer was, no, but it is true. 
And his implication was that he held the power because he was sitting in the seat of the federal government and he said, look, I hold the power and what I say is true is true and I do not care about facts. I do not care about reality. And that's really dangerous. See, that's no longer is this just some, some guys in a university who espouse this. This has come all the way down to people we might interact with on a daily basis. People who do have some form of power. And to me, that's really scary and that's really dangerous. Um, so again, we're going to recap. The, the Muslim says, Allah is God. And the Marxist says, society is God. And the cosmic humanist says, everything is God. And the secular humanist says, chance is God. But what does the postmodernist say? He says, I am God. And so what does this do to our society? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible tells us what this does to our society. If you read in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and and I'll read that for you here, and a lot of you are familiar with this, but if you could, while I read this, maybe close your eyes and just think about it, and think about how different portions of the passage might relate to these other worldviews and relate to the society we live in. So, the passage says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove of those who practice them. So what does this mean for all of you? The question that's been asked before is, how should you now live? 
So I'd say this, if you hold to the biblical worldview, maybe today you could ask yourself, do I hold it completely? Or do I just hold it in part? Maybe there's one of those elements up there that I don't really, I haven't really been holding that. Have you allowed other worldviews to supplant your worldview in any of these points? If so, I challenge you to replace this faulty worldview with a righteous worldview. And then, if you're here today and you do not hold to the biblical worldview, and we welcome you here and we're glad you're here, if you do not agree with what I've said about God, or if you hold to Islam or Marxism or New Age or secular humanism or postmodernism or some combination of these, I want to urge you to reconsider your position. Please consider the truth claims of the Bible and weigh them as objectively as you can. If you have questions, you're welcome to ask me or ask one of our pastors or ask someone who brought you here today. Furthermore, I'm going to issue you this challenge. If you do not hold the biblical worldview, and that's fine, I want to challenge you to pray to God today. And I'm going to give you a chance in just a minute here. Pray to God and just ask Him to reveal Himself to you. You know what? If He is indeed real and the Bible is His truth, don't you want to know? You know, if He doesn't exist and you pray that prayer and ask Him to reveal Himself to you, what have you lost? You haven't lost anything. But what if you choose to reject Him and He is real and the Bible is true? What have you lost? You've lost everything. And even still, I I want to throw this in, that you may have some intellectual objections to the biblical worldview and to the Bible and to God. But I, I, would, I would wager to guess that if you have not chosen to pursue a right relationship with the creator of the universe, if you have rejected the possibility of being reconciled to the all-powerful God, I think it's probably not on the basis of intellectual objections. I'm really confident and I would, I would be very sure that what's really holding you back is your sin the evil in your life that you're trying to hide from everybody, that your conscience is even convicting about, maybe even now. And I want you to know, friends, that there is reconciliation in God through Jesus Christ and that your life can be made new and that you do not have to live in the sin any longer and that you can spend eternity beyond this life in fellowship with the Creator. Oh... Friends, I plead with you, please, turn from your unbelief and change your worldview. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a way that we can think about the world, a way that we can run with perseverance, a framework that we can set our minds upon, Lord, to answer all of the difficult questions in life, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for each person who's here today, or wherever everybody is at, any person is at, Lord, I am so thankful that they were willing to walk in the door and listen to this today, God. Lord, there may be some people out here who who have come into a right relationship with you in the past, God, but they they may not 
hold to all the, the points of the worldview. They may not be answering all of the tough questions in life according to your scripture, but instead are, have, have let the world and let their flesh and let their desires come in and replace their thoughts on some of these, God. Lord, right now, I, I pray for these people, Lord. I pray that each one would uh, uh, consider that. And, and if you're here today and... And that's your position. I just challenge you to, to confess that to God and, and seek to replace that part of the worldview with His. And, and Lord, I know there's other people who are here today who, um, Lord, have, do not have a right relationship with you, God. Um, and maybe this is the first time they've even heard about this. Lord, and, and if you are one of those people today, I challenge you to pray and just say, God, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. And you know, maybe He has revealed Himself to you already. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, if You have revealed Yourself to me, God, whoever You are, make it clear and open my eyes. And He will meet you there. And maybe there are some of you here today who have heard this message before and heard the message of salvation. Your friend who's brought you here has, uh, has maybe shared the gospel with you at some point and you've heard it but you have not received it. Well, today could be your chance. And if that's you, I would encourage you to just to pray right now and say, Heavenly Father, I know that Jesus Christ stands in the place, in my place, that my sins separate me from you and I receive the free gift of salvation that I know about that comes through Jesus Christ and I I accept the gift of eternal life so that I can have a right relationship with you. God, we thank you uh, that you do love us, that you have reached out to us in this way. Lord, and as we, as we go into the future, as we go into this week, Lord, help us to rely on right thinking, on a right spiritual understanding of, of how you love us and how you have created this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So thank you for coming. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. We will see you on Wednesday night for house churches. And again next Sunday morning at uh, 8.45 for prayer and church. Thanks.